0: Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus Da Silva, and joining us again, he either really enjoyed it the first time or he's a glutton for punishment or maybe a little bit of both, but uh, very proud to welcome back Mr. John Stryker-Meyer. How are you doing today, John? Good, Marcus.
1: Good to be back. You know, I enjoyed the first time around, so when you extended the invitation, how could I say no?
0: (laughs) I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And so today... So John appeared on, it was just a few episodes ago. It was episode 13 of season three. And in that episode, we talked about quite a few different topics. We sort of broadly touched on sort of several different things. And today we're gonna be a little more focused on uh, one particular topic. And you don't necessarily have to listen to the first one in order to understand what's going on in this episode, but I definitely recommend that you do listen to both. So if you're joining us for the first time with me and John, then stick around. It's going to be it's going to be very informative and uh, certainly check out that second episode. And, uh, actually funny enough today, I was listening to, uh, your latest episode of, of your podcast there, John, uh, called sodcast. And, uh, you guys were having a lot of fun on that one. It was making me laugh. So it's quite entertaining. Is that the one with John Mullins? Yes. (laughs) Oh yeah.
1: That was, that was quite the interview with him and the Phoenix project. I learned stuff from
0: that interview. I had never even heard of that, that project either. So that was, uh, Oh really? Yeah, we knew about it, but never had detail from a guy who was there. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) definitely check that out. So uh, John's uh, podcast is also linked in the episode description here. So if you want to learn more about uh, Mac vsog, then go check it out. And how many episodes are you up to now for that, John? You got about 30? Well, we've got 26 in the can. Okay. And uh, Jocko and Echo just
1: posted number 22, the audio version. Okay. And so far they, we record them both as audio and as a YouTube, but, um, they've delayed posting the YouTubes because they're so busy, but they just posted the YouTube, uh, Solidcast number five. And, um, I've learned that the, and that was with, uh, uh my good friend, Larry Trimble, who mm-hmm. was up on the mountain, on marble mountain the night that the base was overrun. They had uh, 16 green berets killed, which was, uh, Still, the highest casualty rate for Green Berets killed in one one engagement, and uh, Larry Trimble's five, and then John Peters, my co-author from on the ground, who ran recon with a uh, Spike Team, Rhode Island. He will be on uh, the number six.
0: Fantastic! Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking. I haven't. I don't think I've actually seen any of the YouTube episodes, but I'm I'm caught up. Uh, at least on the audio one. So I'm looking forward, looking yeah, forward. Yeah, because you're help.
1: on the road or you're just doing pull-ups. You put them on for a couple <laughs> hours while you're pulling up, right? <laughs> that's right. Don't forget to introduce the sequel war to your audience.
0: Yes. So, um, yeah, that's right. So uh, John was the one zero. And I know with with these podcasts, and I know whenever I listen to John, uh, Jocko's podcast and, and John's podcast as well, the I don't know if it's maybe just the civilian mindset or something, but man, the acronyms and code names and nicknames, uh, geez, it gets, gets a bit tough at times. But uh, John was the 1-0 of RT Idaho, uh, one zero being team leader. And he fought in the secret war in Vietnam, uh, running reconnaissance missions across the fence in Laos and Cambodia and North Vietnam. And these were highly classified missions, super dangerous missions. And just the the lessons in leadership and bravery and humility and the the list of virtues goes on and on. Just absolutely incredible stuff. And you can also check out John's books as well. Uh, I mentioned one earlier, but we have Sog Chronicles Volume One, Across the Fence and the Secret War, uh, Across the Fence, the Secret War in Vietnam, and On the Ground, the Secret War in Vietnam. And those are all available on audiobook at this point as well. The first two are available as audiobook. Uh, we're setting up
1: a schedule to record the third one. And then um, they're also for all of the podcasts. You should go to my website, Sog Chronicles.com and go to blogs. And there we have all of the casts as well as my eight interviews with Jocko Willink. Oh, fantastic. Great. And others, which might be with some attorney, you know, some guy from some Canadian.
0: some canadian kid right yeah (laughs) no i appreciate that and and all the links for that are going to be in the uh, episode description of this episode and so what we're going to do for today we're going to discuss one particular mission to open the show and it was called operation tailwind and this is largely chronicled in SOG Chronicles, volume one. And there's a particular element of this mission. There was a a controversy that occurred after the fact uh, many years later, um, and it was basically just a a slanderous report that was um, published as a TV show for was it CBS at the time? The Communist News Network. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So it was um, th- the whole thing as a, as a reader, uh, for me, it was just very odd. Um, it was just sort of hard to understand what the what the motivation of all that was. But it you know sounded like it was largely political and, um, you know, just ugly business. Well, and so at the time, the reason why they did it was the Communist News Network
1: at the time uh, was trying to compete with 60 Minutes. It's a TV show that's on a major network. I don't know. It's I forget. Is it ABC, NBC? Yeah, it's one of those. One, one of those. One of those fluky things that nobody listens to anymore. And uh, they were trying to compete, and they did it at our expense. Mm-hmm. So they slandered the men from uh, Operation Tailwind. We'll let it be at that.
0: Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna skip that piece of uh, that portion of history for today because it's not, not important. Yeah. So let's deal with the valor. Be- that's right. That's right. <laughs> and so, uh, what I'm going to do is I I took notes, and this is all coming from SOG Chronicles Volume One. And we're basically just going to run through this operation, and I have some questions uh, for John along the way. And then at the conclusion of of that operation, then we're just going to open it up, and we're going to broadly discuss uh those who have uh who are still considered missing in action um in vietnam and and across the fence so not only are they considered but they are they are yes that's right and uh yeah so i think we'll we'll start it up then in that case and so let's get my notes all ready and let's do this and so uh they're sort of in the beginning portion here uh, you, John, you do a great job at describing uh, kind of like the sort of the opening page and a half. You do a great job at describing just sort of the backstory about what was happening in North Vietnam at the time and just kind of some basic history. So I'm just going to briefly cover that and then we're going to run right into the mission. Sure. So uh, here we go. So in 1962, despite the communists in North Vietnam signing a treaty not to station or train soldiers in Laos and Cambodia. By 1971, there were more than 60,000 communist soldiers and couriers in Laos alone. The Ashaw Valley bristled with NVA armaments, food supplies, and equipment delivered to North Vietnam by Russia, China, and other various Eastern Bloc countries. Captured enemy documents revealed that several infantry battalions and at least two anti-aircraft artillery battalions were stationed in the valley. And so that's just a little bit of the backstory there. And so we're gonna fast forward from 1962 to 18 February, 1971. Two recon teams assigned to SOG Base of Operations in Da Nang Command and Control, CCN, were designated to run a diversionary mission along the Ashaw Valley. Their mission, Tie down NVA enemy forces through the use of airstrikes while gathering any anti-military intelligence uh, possible from enemy soldiers, the local Laotians forced into service with the NVA or through wiretaps. And so very briefly, John, I just want to ask you. Um, so you actually were discussing this on your on the podcast I was listening to earlier, um, but not everybody who was helping the NVA. Uh, was doing it of their own free will. And how did that work out?
1: Well, as, as is true with any communist uh, government, which look at the Ukraine, either you come with us or we'll kill you. That's today's example of communism at its raw, ugliest form. And uh, in Laos, the uh, North Vietnamese army came in, penetrated, uh, took over the countryside, and the indigenous people who lived there were forced to work with them. If they didn't, they would kill them. So they were working with the North Vietnamese Army. Our secret war began in 64 or so by uh, the time this mission went down. It was year seven of the secret war. And I think this was uh, part of an Operation Lamson. Where they had a uh, the uh, South Vietnamese were going to t- attempt to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and that operation, our two recon teams went in, RT Python, RT Intruder went in on opposite sides of the Ashaw Valley, to as, as you described it, uh, for intel purposes to, to distract the NBA. and uh, they ran into a world of, into a world of shit
0: on the ground and on their own accord. And, you know, what's sort of kind of the the shocking simplicity of it is not only are we going, you know, as far as the communists are concerned, not only are you going to work for us, but if you don't, we're going to rape your women. We're going to brutalize your your children. We're going to kill you. We're going to do whatever it takes to get you. You know, it's not just it's not as simple as just, you know, oh, you know, come work for us. It's like, no, no, no. It's an extreme consequence.
1: Yeah, there are some outstanding books out there now. Uh, At the end of the show, we can reference them. A couple, one in particular of a gal who wrote a book uh, called Ground Kisser, who talks about her experience living in South Vietnam before South Vietnam fell, and then how her village and her life and her family changed forever. And it's just an incredible uh, emotional book.
0: I wrote that one down. (laughs) I'll be be updating the reading list on, on my website as well. So we'll be sure we have everything up to date there. All right. Um, Yes. Okay. So uh, continuing on. So just as John mentioned, uh, two SOG recon, uh, recon teams were assigned to this mission, RT intruder and RT Python due to the dangerous nature of this mission. Additional green berets were assigned to RT intruder SFC, Sammy Hernandez and SFC, Charles West Wesley, the one zero, the team leader, captain Ronald doc Watson, the one one, which is the assistant team leader, Sergeant Allen, baby Jesus Lloyd, and one two radio operator, Sergeant Raymond Robbie Robinson. And that actually says a lot that, uh, the mission was so dangerous, you know, for SOG, it was so dangerous that they had to bring in additional guys as well. I mean, it's just, just unbelievable. Uh, RT Python was led by one zero captain Jim Butler, and they were inserted on the Eastern side of the Ashaw Valley. Uh, Both teams were inserted without incident. And from the first episode that you were on, we, we talk into a lot of the insertions that uh, you and RT Idaho went into uh <laughs> not so much without incident. And so was right. it was it surprising that both of these teams were inserted without any issue? Right, and you know and that could be
1: that could be for one of two reasons. A, the North Vietnamese Army didn't want to engage our teams at the time because by 71 they had uh, over a battalion which would be more than 3,000 men who were trained as sappers, which in that time were the, were the elite of the North Vietnamese Army. And their sole purpose in life was to find a SOG recon team, track it down, and kill the Americans, but leave the indigenous troops alive for psychological impact on the Americans. And so... Um, it was a major factor, and so they could have had it. Or, and, again, even in 71, there were times when, even back in our day, in 68, 69, or 70, we got inserted into targets occasionally. Sometimes, uh, like we, like you were talking about earlier, there, there was a time when two or three days in a row we'd get shot out of targets in the morning and the afternoon. And, you know, you'd have an hour flight, boredom, and then sheer craziness of trying to get inserted getting shot out, getting shot up.
0: But in this case, they got in. Try and try again, right? <laughs> Indeed. Jeez. So as RT uh, Python was being uh, headed into the uh, target, uh, RT Intruder with five green berets, and hopefully I pronounced this correctly, a uh, five brew Montanard. Yard. Yes, sir. There we go. We're just call them yards. We called them yards. That's right. That's easier for me. There we go. Um, five yard team members uh, moved off the LZ in search of a trail that was near a ridgeline. And so RT intruder is inserted and with NVA trackers moving behind them, firing signal shots in the air, came across a large trail. They crossed it and set up a team peri- perimeter and took note of about a dozen separate communication lines running along the trail. And so literally what we're talking about is in the middle of the jungle, there's like just a bunch of like telephone line, like some type of communication lines, just lining the jungle floor on, on the sides of the trail.
1: Yeah. yeah. And uh, they, they had different styles at different times during the war and 68, uh, we encountered uh, telephone poles that had two or three wires and the and when we would cl- we would have like Sal or fuck uh, one of our team members would climb the telephone pole and tap it and then they'd bring the wire down cover it with mud so anybody walking past wouldn't notice the wiretap. And the NVA phones at that time um, they were when you put the phone, in the cradle, they were still alive. Whereas American phones, you put the phone in the cradle, it's dead. But the CIA told us, when you get in, even if you can't hear anything, tape it. Because when you bring back the tapes, we're gonna amplify it a hundred times until we can hear something. And we've gotten good intel off of the SOG recon tapes. So by 1970, I've heard of different configurations for the telephone lines. So I'm not sure exactly what they came into. I didn't get that detail for the book, but they had telephone lines that came from North Vietnam into the area of operations and spread south further to improve their commo. And of course, by that time, they had fuel lines that were going south uh, from the North Vietnam to fuel the trucks that were coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, bringing troops, supplies, artillery, weapons. And that was one of the primary targets for SOG, was to monitor that, intervene, and to uh, interdict any time we could. And, of course, try to capture uh, good intel or a POW, which is the best source of uh, intel.
0: And at the time, any of this, was was any of this being uh, told to the American public? No. Yeah. And and was that more was that intentional or was that more the fact that it is the secret war and we just had to keep it under it's wraps? It's a
1: very secret war. Don't forget, we all all the Green Berets and many of the aviators who uh, supported Sog teams on the ground, um, the aviators themselves signed NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, which in our case so you can't talk about the your uh, anything you've done. Relating to the secret war to anybody, not your mother, your girlfriend, or your dog. And, uh, they meant it. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know if I told you this before or not, but, uh, years after my book across the fence came out, my dad read it. He came up to me and said, now I understand why this guy would come by and pick up your, our trash. He said, it was a tall black guy. And he says, I later learned because my dad got a job at the post office And he saw this guy at the post office at the FBI building. So an FBI agent came by and picked up my trash and inspected our garbage to make sure there was no correspondence from me that was inappropriate. Wow. Good old fan belt inspectors, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Jeez. All right. Back to Operation Tailwind. Yes, sir. As the team was communicating with Covey and Covey is the uh, name for the forward air controller to determine if they were on the correct hill, they came into contact with five NVA soldiers, the five NVA were neutralized, at which point one zero Captain Watson called for extraction, because the team was compromised. And uh, just as a, a quick side note. Uh, as this was occurring, uh, Wesley and Hernandez had captured several NVA documents, medals, clothing, and a communist flag from the dead soldiers. And I was curious about this. Um, in particular, I mean, NVA documents, obviously there's intel there, but the, the medals, the clothing, and a communist flag was that significant that they captured that specifically?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what the medal was, uh, but the flag anytime you capture an NVA flag that's being carried by NVA officers, that's a big deal. And uh, I'm not sure of the details on that flag, but they we're hoping to interview Sammy someday in the near future for SODCAST. So we have to ask that question to find out.
0: And And what's the importance of the flag in particular? Like just because you could use it as like to pretend like you're like undercover kind of thing or? Well, no, the NVA, they had their
1: flags, which would be for the regiment or for the battalion, whatever it was. And uh, the fact that they had an officer carrying it, I'm assuming it was an officer. So if we captured it, it's just uh, one of these quiet pride things. It's like, we killed these commies and we got their NVA flag. That's all. And unless there is something written on the flag, which it would be reviewed and turned over for Intel analysis and things like that, just to see where the materials came from, et cetera, that this is way above my pay grade. My job was to get it, give it over.
0: <laughs> no, that was good. See, these are the details you get when you get to talk to the author, right? <laughs> Indeed. All right. Continuing on as a team was waiting to be extracted. Bad weather began to close in on the ridgeline and the team's LZ. The first chopper began to lift Wesley Robinson and two yard team members out of the LZ when it began to lose power. The four men jumped off the ladder they had started to climb, landing on top of the dead NVA soldiers that they had killed minutes earlier. The helicopter crew had to cut the ladder loose. Because the mountain air was thin, a second chopper had a difficult time lifting off the ridgeline, dragging the four team members through the jungle before clearing the target area. A third chopper lifted the three remaining yard team members, carting no more men due to weather and thin air conditions. And all three of these helicopters received heavy enemy ground fire. And I I think you may have mentioned this on the first podcast, but we'll go over it again. Uh, But just like when you hear that the helicopters that are coming in to extract the soldiers out of there, they're barely able to lift out of the LZ. And what I thought was interesting too, is that the, the one chopper that had just the three uh, yard members, those men are much smaller in stature than the green berets too. So I think that just speaks to the, just the, the craziness of it all.
1: Right. And, and layoffs had high mountain peaks. So um, if the, when the weather was warm again, there's like ratios for the height of the mountains the weight that they're carrying the humidity and how much power the helicopter can generate to lift people. Cause when you have people on ropes or a ladder, it has an extra dimension of extra weight for the helicopter, as opposed to just having guys jump on the helicopter and fly out because you have the weight and then they're swinging back and forth beneath it on top of all that. So, um, Getting extracted on on ropes can be very, it's always challenging. And in this case, they were lucky to get out. And of course, as you said, think about this. You're on a rope that's over 150 feet hung from the helicopter. The helicopter crew hear the enemy shooting at them. They leave, begin to leave the area, but you're still on the ropes. You're still in the jungle and you become a human pinball, ricocheting off the trees until you break out. And when we've lost men there, we've had men that had broken arms, broken backs uh, during an extraction like that. And uh, I I had a few myself where uh, I lived up to my nickname, tilt, feeling like a human (laughs) pinball, bouncing off those trees, not fun.
0: I'm (laughs) I'm, I'm lucky around to still talk about it. Indeed. And, and as well, you know, just the fact that the aviators were actually able to, despite the conditions, despite being under enemy uh, fire, the skill and the bravery is just incredible, you know. Right. including at that time, it was the 101st Airborne, uh, Air Mobile.
1: So we're not talking about some rinky dink. These guys had been assigned Assad for over four years in running missions across the fence in the layoffs. And they were there during 68, which was our worst year. And uh, they were good. They were highly trained, highly respected. And uh, there's a couple of good books coming out now. One just landed with uh, the experiences of a door gunner in 68 with 100. Just great, great stuff. Wow. do Do you know the name of that book? Just happen to know it. We saved SOG souls. It's by Roger Lockshear, who was a crew chief with the Black Angels. And uh, he was there from the end of '67 throughout 68. And he, here's a classic example of the courage of these aviators. In his book, they're in the middle of a gun run. we have a recon team on the ground. The 101st Airborne is making a gun run with their gunships. He and his fellow door gunner, Scott, are hanging out the door, shooting enemy soldiers. And Pat Watkins, the Covey, says, Hey, your helicopter's on fire. Your engine's burning. Do you realize that? And Roger looks out and he goes, Yep, the engine was burning. Did he fix the engine? No. He got back on the M60 and continued <laughs> firing at the NVA until a helicopter crashed and knocked his ass unconscious. That's the kind of courage. So, this is the 101st Airborne that carried on that tradition in the 71.
0: Yeah, just incredible. And, oh, yeah. you, do, and you document a lot of these stories in, in your books as well. So I'm excited to check. I like the name of that title, the name of that book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. As darkness closed in, CWO2 George Berg returned to the LZ to pick up the three remaining Green Berets. Helicopter crew chief spec for Walter Dempsey and door gunner Gary Johnson lowered three stable extraction harness rigs attached to ropes that were more than 150 feet long to the trio on the ground. Did I get that right? Stable? Yes, sir. Stable lines were designed by special forces soldiers for jungle extraction and could keep a soldier connected to the line, even if the soldier was shot or knocked unconscious. And I know on the last episode, we, we talked about your uh, circumstance uh, falling out of your, your line. <laughs> yeah. Always exciting. Moving right along, sir. <laughs> <laughs> they hooked into the stable rig as Doc Watson signaled the chopper crew to lift out of the LZ. At this point, the helicopter was slammed with enemy gunfire. Hernandez was approximately 30 to 40 feet off the ground when his stable rig snagged a tree branch, snapping the rope. He fell to the ground, knocking him unconscious. At that time, the NVA anti-aircraft artillery slammed into the helicopter. The ill-fated helicopter traveled approximately 600 feet before making an ugly U-turn and flipped over, crashing into the side of a granite-faced mountain, bursting into flames while also slamming Doc Watson and baby Jesus Lloyd into the side of the cliff, killing them instantly. And yeah, just as you said, I mean, that's a um, when you read that, that's that's tough because you can kind of see things, you know, the weather's closing in, it's getting dark NVA are closing in and then it just, you know, it just goes from bad to worse. And it's just brutal.
1: Absolutely. You, You
0: described it perfectly. Miraculously, Hernandez survived the fall. When he when he regained consciousness, he heard NVA soldiers and trackers searching for the men of RT Intruder. He stealthily moved into the thick vegetation and hid. Under the cover of nightfall, Hernandez briefly emerged from his hiding place to slam his dislocated shoulder into a tree in order to pop it back into the joint. And in the book, you have a a little. kind of firsthand account there. And he said that when he slammed, (laughs) when he slammed his shoulder into the tree, he, he, as he said, he was seeing stars. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sam is quite, he's quite the soldier. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Under the cover of nightfall Hernandez briefly. Oh yeah. Sorry. So uh, he, Pops his shoulder back in, then returns uh, back to his hiding place and basically just stays the night uh, trying to hide from the NVA trackers. On the next day, on 19 February, RT, and is it Habu? Yes. RT Habu, led by 1-0 SSG Danzer, was inserted into the target to recover the dead bodies, presuming that Hernandez had been killed in action. Other members on that mission included Cliff Newman, SSG James Woodham, a medic, SFC Jimmy Horton, Sergeant, I hope I pronounced this correctly, Lemuel McLaughlin. Yes. And SFC Charles Wesley, who had been lifted out of the target the previous day. And Wesley volunteered for that mission. And again, I mean, he gets rescued the day before and volunteers. And yep, we're going right back in. Oh, yeah incredible a stud and this expanded uh, rt habu team were on a bright light mission which is the most deadly of all sog assignments and so john can you tell us then so why is a bright light mission considered to be the most dangerous
1: yeah it's they're the most they were the most dangerous because they're designed uh, as in this case there's a team in trouble or wounded or kia and so the recon team's gotta go back in It's a bright light. So we always ran those missions, heavy with ammo, hand grenades, one bottle of water, no food and body bags, because you, uh, you knew that you would make contact. And the idea was it, the hope would be to find the team that was in distress, order down pilots. Cause often a bright light mission would be for, for Air Force, Marine Corps, or Army uh, crew members who were shot down and we had to go in to determine if they're alive or not and if we could to recover the bodies. So in this case, the bright light mission was to get our, anybody from RT intruder, survivors and if there's no survivors to attempt to bring out the bodies as gruesome as that was. Yeah, indeed.
0: Shortly after R.T. Habu had been inserted uh, with Green Beret SGM Billy Waugh, uh, he spotted a signal from Hernandez from the helicopter um, who had silently crawled into an open area, which, again, just ridiculous. And so <laughs> they picked him up and they returned him to Fubai. Now, meanwhile, back at the target area, uh, Covey, which was uh, in a, a Cessna 02A twin engine light observation plane flown by Air Force First Lieutenant James Woodstock Hull with veteran recon man SFC Jose Fernandez in the right seat as Covey Rider, located the crash site and directed RT Habu towards it. And so, this just again, the, the skill of these aviators is unbelievable. and Oh, yeah you know, uh, uh, several, t- <laughs> it why, like several times Hull flew the Cessna near treetop level to spot the team so that Fernandez could provide them with accurate information as they moved through the thick jungle towards the crash site. Ridiculous.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, those Covey pilots, the air force, um, it's a slow moving plane and they would <laughs> get so low. I mean, of course, the closer you got to the treetops, the less chance the NBA had of shooting you out of the sky. Uh, when they got higher up, you know, then you're, it's easy for the anti-aircraft. Because by 71, they had all of the Soviet Union and Chinese anti-aircraft weaponry, lock, stock, and barrel, everything from the 51 caliber machine guns to the uh, uh, 23 Mike mic. 37, Mike, Mike, I think it was like a 57. And then they had anti-aircraft. You remember the World War II movies when you see um, aircraft flying and there's black explosions in the air? Well, that's shrapnel. And the NVA had that there. So, and that was, we called it ACAC. And that was the same thing as World War II. But you're flying, this would be in late 60s, early 70s, you know, 25 years after World War II. And here's ACAC in the air to blow your helicopter, or in this case, an O2 Cessna out of the sky.
0: <laughs> Insane. Oh, yes, sir. Soon after, the Cessna was hit with heavy NVA gunfire. It crashed a few miles away, killing Hull and Fernandez. However, thanks to Hull and Fernandez, RT Intruder located the crash site. The team had to rappel down a cliff to reach the final resting spot of the crashed helicopter and the six Americans. Eventually the team placed the bodies of Berg, Woods, Johnson, and one leg, which they assumed was Dempsey's as his body could not be located into body bags. Another grisly discovery was that of the bodies of Watson and Lloyd hanging from a tree, uh, hanging from the cliff, sorry, pardon me, hanging from the cliff face, still attached to their Stabo rigs. Danzer determined that because night was falling, R.T. Habu should try to retrieve the bodies of the two recon men in the morning. However, in the morning, the NVA fiercely attacked R.T. Habu, wounding several team members. In order to survive, R.T. Habu reluctantly left behind the body bags, as they maneuvered away from the RON to get to a more advantageous position in the jungle to combat enemy troops while searching for an LZ and attending to wounded team members. And that must've just been so horrible to, you know, you actually, you have them, I mean, as gruesome as it is, you, you locate them, you put them in their body bags and you go, okay, we're going to, you know, we'll take them out with us in the morning. And then, you know, having to leave them there. I mean, that must have just been a gut-wrenching.
1: Oh, absolutely. I I can't imagine what those guys went through. Uh, You know, we ran a couple of bright lights and that's to get that close, had the bodies, as you say, in the body bag, ready to go. And then it comes down to survival or die trying to bring back dead bodies. As horrible as that sounds, it's a gruesome decision, but they did the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that the men who died would agree with the decisions that were made by the one zero at that time,
0: and and you know that's the, you know my my experience with um, understanding everything that happened. Uh, you know, your stories and, and all those of, of Mac v. Sog. you know, that came through Jocko's podcast. And that's where I first heard of you and, you know, listen to all those episodes and then listening to, you know, all, all the episodes that you have of your podcast. And you start to get this idea of, you know, what actually, you know, what what you're asking men to do, what you're asking humans to do and the decisions that they have to make. And you know, just as you said, you know, the the men who who have died, they would have agreed that the right decision is save yourself and get out. But that doesn't make the decision to leave them any easier. No, absolutely. And so, as this is uh, occurring uh, with RT Habu. Uh, a few miles away, uh, Captain, I'm not going to pronounce his last name because its uh, I'm going to butcher it, but we'll call him, uh, we'll go by his first and his nickname, Captain Fred Lightning, which is a great nickname, and yes. three men from his recon team repelled to the crash Cessna and confirmed that Hull and Fernandez were dead. That small bright light team recovered Fernandez's body from the wreckage But sadly, they could not recover Hull uh, Hull because the front engine of the plane had pinned him into the aircraft, making it impossible to recover his body from it. And again, that that just must have been, you can see him and you can can get him, but you can't, you know.
1: Right. Yeah, we had a chapter like that and on the ground where Black and the Frenchman went in for a bright light, exactly the same situation. And both of the the pilot and the, uh, and the, uh, Covey rider or the co-pilot, I forget was for the co-pilot when they crashed, it was, they were, they became embedded in the instrument panel and the engine. And it's just God awful.
0: Yeah. It's devastating. Across the Ashaw Valley, captain Jim Butler and RT Python had been embroiled in intense combat with other NVA units, in fighting so intense that 1-1 SSG Les Chapman fought hand-to-hand with NVA soldiers. Okay, what? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
1: in between changing magazines, he had to defend himself with hand-to-hand combat against the NVA. My God. I know. I just can't imagine.
0: And at one point, when team members from RT Python and RT Habu were fighting for their collective lives, Covey made radio contact with Butler, offering to pull RT Python out first due to the intense nature and the ferocity of the NVA attack on that team. Butler declined and told Covey to extract RT Habu first. And again, I, I remember we opened the show, the first episode with uh i think i said it was my favorite leadership lesson which is that the one zeros were always the first uh pardon me the one zeros were always the last ones to get on the helicopter for extraction as the team leader their feet are the last ones to touch the helicopter for extraction and you see that bravery play out there um you know, by basically just saying, yeah, we're in trouble. Yeah, no, it's fine. Go help the other guys. We got this. I mean, it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, just great valor. And then Jim Butler, sadly we just buried Jim Butler last July at Arlington.
0: By the end of 20 February an air force CH 53 pulled out RT Habu flew the team. Uh, most of whom were wounded and then turned around and returned to the Ashall Valley to rescue R.T. Python, which suffered at least one KIA and several wounded in actions. And so, I mean, at least they, you know, they went and they, they got them out of there. Oh yeah. Insane, insane fighting. And so that. So the conclusion of operation tailwind there um, takes us. So
1: that's intruder. Tailwind was 70.
0: Pardon me. And okay. uh, so that kind of takes us to what we're going to discuss in a little bit more detail today. And so I'm going to, I have some uh, statistics here. And then uh, this is from your book. So this is from 2017. Yeah. If I could just interrupt for one quick. Oh, yeah. Second. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the quick
1: sidebars here Cliff Newman, who's on that bright light, yes. has gone back to Vietnam three times working with the government in an attempt to find the bodies that were in the body bags. He's been back with DPAA. A couple of times they had complications with air flights and things like that, but Cliff has been back and they might be hopefully booking another uh, mission, but COVID knocked everything out of the box for 2021. But Cliff, and he's no, he's no spring chicken anymore. I think <laughs> Cliff's like 76, 77 years old. He's old, but he's ready to go if they call him. And he's been going back to try to help DPA, which is the the, the DOD's Department of POW MIA uh, accounting agency. And they're the one's primary responsibility to bring back uh, our missing.
0: Yes, sir. And so the the statistics that I have here, uh, I'm pretty sure uh, you correct me. Saw Chronicles, Volume 1, was 2017 published? Correct, right before somebody got the Medal of Honor at the White House. That's but right. we
1: won't get to that till later.
0: Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, uh, correct me if I'm, uh, you know, sure. if the figures are out of date here, but I'm just going to read the, the figures that I have in front of me. And today, uh, as you mentioned, uh, those six Americans from RT Intruder and the four 101st Airborne Aviators. Are among the 1,611 service members and civilians who are still listed as missing in action from the Vietnam War. And this statistic shocked me. I mean, well, I mean, it's all shocking, but they're among uh, more than 83,000 US service members who remain missing in action today collectively from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And people familiar with this overall POW slash MIA mission concede that approximately 51,000 of those service members are listed as missing over deep ocean water. So that would be, you know, Navy personnel and Air Force aviators who sadly will never be able to be recovered. And And Marine Corps aviators too. Yes, sir. And I think, and so now we kind of get into just sort of discussing a little bit more about Um, those who, who are missing and, and I think that's one of those, certainly as a civilian, uh, for me, who's, uh, learning about this subject matter, you know, many years after this has occurred, that is shocking to me that so many, I mean, and you think about those who not only were killed in action, but those who were just, they're still missing.
1: Right. So for the Vietnam War, we have 58,000 plus. And then the number of MIAs today, which uh, is June the 10th, uh, 2022. Yes, sir. There's 1,584. 50 of those are Green Berets that are still missing from the secret war. In addition to that, we have documented, the Special Operations Association has documented 83 aviators who died, still listed as missing in action, supporting SOG teams on the ground from the Army Marine Corps Air Force that uh, was supporting us aviators from helicopters, fast movers, A1 Sky Raiders, and, of course, gunships.
0: Yeah, and, and that's that element that kind of hits me sort of secondary because you, you think immediately, oh, right. You know, Sog soldiers on the ground. Okay, but then you think, no, it's those who are supporting them as well. You know, there's more than one piece of the uh, piece of the puzzle there.
1: Oh, absolutely, and, and it's a double-edged sword because the families of those green berets and those aviators are never told the truth. They're told their their next of kin died. In, in conflict on in enemy territory in South Vietnam. The men who earned Medal of Honors, they all say, except for Mike Rose, all say for valor in South Vietnam, because that was part of the secret war. And their families, many of them, their parents, brothers and sisters, and now their children have died without realizing where their father or brother served.
0: Which is, and again, when you think about, it's not just about the soldier, these are, I mean, I think it was actually, we were on a phone call and I think we were discussing this where it was, it's not just the soldier that this impacts, it's they have, you know, they had girlfriends or wives, siblings, parents, you know, they have people who cared about them and to think that you're, you'll you never really know what happened. And, and not only that you never really know, that you're actually actively being lied to because there is, as you said, there's that extra element of this was the secret war.
1: Yeah, here's a classic example. Uh, you know, you're familiar with how I got my job with recon team Idaho. So May of 68, Idaho goes into a target, disappears, and those two Green Berets, Glenn Lane and Robert Owen, are amongst the 50 Green Berets from the secret war that are still missing in action. On May 1st, Robert Owen left his wife and his daughter, Robin, and said, I'll be home for your birthday, talking to his daughter, Robin. He hitchhiked across the country, got to Seattle, flew to Vietnam, and he mailed back the money because he saved the money. Instead of flying, the money he saved, he mailed it home to his wife, goes to Vietnam, because he's returning as a combat vet, he gets in, goes right to Saw, gets on Idaho. He leaves South, South Carolina on May 1st. He goes missing in action in Laos, May 22nd. And his daughter never had daddy home for the birthday that he promised to come back for.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And that's just like every family has their story. It's just like just completely gut-wrenching and our government today is like, nah, eh, they could be doing just a little bit more, but that's another story.
0: Well, and, and again, and, and that's that element of, there's that human element that you, you can't forget, which is like, I mean, yeah, just the idea of that. Like, you know, I'll, I'll be back home and that's it yeah and then
1: it, that got a personal level, I'm very biased. It's like welcome to the sequel war team just got wiped out. We got an opening. Welcome <laughs> to the sequel war. Yeah. oh
0: <laughs> come right in <laughs> yeah thanks <laughs> and what was the effort i i I can't remember if we discussed it on the first episode, but that's fine we we I'll ask you now uh there must have been an effort uh a bright light mission to try and locate those missing oh yes,
1: the bright light was uh ST uh, Oregon, Mike Tucker was the 1-0, George Sternberg. They were on the ground for a short period of time, had heavy enemy contact. They eventually ended up in a bomb crater where they defended themselves against uh, extreme NVA odds. At one point, they got hit with American weapons and American hand grenades. One American hand grenade blew George Sternberg's boots off. His jungle boots were blown off. Uh, the medic on the team, Steve Perry, was paralyzed from the waist down. And they were able to, to, to troll George Sternberg, got, uh, got him up to the King Bee, the South Vietnamese Air Force helicopter, got him in there so he could get extracted. And uh, when, at, at near the end, when George was coming up, put his final team member on. An NVA opened fire on him and shot him in the arm. He turned around and killed the NVA. And then he flipped another one to Bird before he got on the King Bee and was extracted. Now, Spider Parks who had been on Idaho was on the chase ship. And when they got extracted, there was no team. Okay. So Spider went in by himself. He was on the ground looking for the team Didn't see anything. He's under heavy enemy fire. He jumps on the King beans when they're getting extracted. He's sitting in the door, firing his weapon. The door gunner next to him was killed in action.
0: Oh my God.
1: Just another day in (sighs) Sog.
0: And what they're getting, um, how do they know? So I guess, I mean, if you're, if uh, an American grenade blows up, I suppose that's maybe a little bit more obvious, but how did they know that they were getting shot at by an American weapon?
1: Because car 15 sound different than AK 47s. And uh, whenever we had firefight, particularly in the initial part, if you had a short burst, you would always try to fire a single shot unless you needed firepower because the AK forty seven when the NVA then heard it, they knew where the, their, their men were, they knew where they've heard a car 15 or the M79. Then they knew where we were and then they could, they would gauge their uh, tactics accordingly.
0: And was it assumed then that the weapons that were being, the American weapons that were being used against them were from the two missing green berets or yeah, that-, that was a painful assumption. Yes. Yeah. And in that case, you go on that bright light mission or, you know, they go on the bright light mission and that's the result of it. And how is it resolved moving forward then at that point?
1: Well, they're they're still listed. uh, Glenn Lane and Robert Owen are still listed as missing in action. And on that bright light, one of the team members was killed in action too. They had to leave his body behind. So, um, that Oregon was shot up severely. It took them over a couple months to heal up and get back into action. When they came back, their first mission was another bright light. Oh they ran <laughs> several bright lights. Yeah, absolutely. And it's then so Spider Parks became the team leader of Idaho for my team. And then we hired some more Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, and we trained them up. And then we started running missions a few months later.
0: And so, I mean, now it's, you know, we're in 2022 and, you know, I I mean, you've done an incredible job at, I mean, I would not be, I would have no idea about any of this stuff if it wasn't for you and, and writing books and, and putting the stories out there. And obviously now that the um, I'm not sure what the correct terminology would be for it, but like the, the non-disclosure it has expired you know that that 20
1: years 20 years in my case some guys have 25 but ours
0: are all 20 right and so now you're moving forward and talking about it and i mean as you mentioned you know cliff has actually tried to go back well he has gone back and, and has attempted to go back another time and and so what is you know moving forward like what is the I don't, I don't even really know what the right word would be. The plan? You know, how, how is it to be reconciled, at least, for, for all those who are still missing?
1: Well, we have a government agency, as I mentioned earlier, DPAA. And because of COVID, they had to, um, for, uh, I think it was the end of 2020 and all of 2021, they terminated all ground missions where they would go back. And there's some other ramifications. Let me just say it this way. We wish they did more for Vietnam veterans because Southeast Asia has the most acidic soil in the world. So literally, if they don't get our men out within five or 10 years, it's over because the soil will literally eat up the bones, everything but the teeth. Wow. So that that clock is beating Obviously, any any amount of common sense will tell you they're not, um, you know, they're not going to be able to get the one thousand five hundred eighty four. We hope they get some of our people. And then uh, on a political posture, they have now going back for World War Two in Korea. They go to mass burials and they recover remains and. They're building up a uh, portfolio of cases that they've done from World War II in Korea because they're easier. And they get a lot of publicity. They get a bigger budget. The bureaucracy grows. But the top priority is supposed to be Vietnam. They give it lip service, not the dedication. And there's a lot of other things that we could get into someday with an investigative report or a good attorney on hand. It's really... (laughs) Um, it's very discouraging. They're not doing what they could. Any Vietnam vet with half a brain would realize it and be very disappointed in our government's conduct today.
0: Well, and uh, the frustration of that. Oh, yeah. You know, how how do you sort of reconcile that, like, internally? Because, you know, obviously you do so much to put the word out and to discuss these things. And I mean, and, and I don't know if it's maybe cause I'm Canadian, you know, we, we don't hear anything about this stuff, you know, for me to learn about this, I have to go out of my way in order to find resources and podcasts and whatever it may be. But how does that even, how does that sort of reconcile itself with, with the fact that it, it doesn't, doesn't get talked about?
1: It, it, it you know, we carry it in our gut. I mean, in my case, I'm just, a, I'm just a, a, a poor reporter, happy to be married with a family, and we don't have the resources that it would require. And I'll show you a classic example of DPAA ineptitude. Jim Shorten-Jones was one of our teams out of Contum. He ran a bright light. And and an F-4 had crashed, an Air Force F-4 crashed. When it came in, it hit a hilltop, a second hilltop, and it crashed and came to rest on the third hill. And they were both assumed to be dead. Uh, Jim did the bright light. He got to the second hill, and what they discovered was the F-4 had gone through an enemy... Bivouac area and killed dozens of soldiers and civilian personnel as it was crashing.
0: Oh my god.
1: So Jim gets run out. The NVA come at him with full force. He gets extracted on strings. He becomes a doctor. He was also in his spare time became an Air Force uh power rescue. And Jim, and this is on Sodcast number, uh, I think in the SOCast number three or two is Jim Shorten Jones, where he goes back on his own dime. He spent $35,000 of his own money to go back to Southeast Asia, to Cambodia, got a team, gets back to the site where the F4 crashed. He was then met and run off by uniformed uh, bandits. They, they told them to leave or die. Jim and his guys were outgunned. They had to leave. Some years later, DPAA came to Jim. He worked with them. He went over with DPAA, stayed two extra weeks, literally helping them to go through the soil, dig the soil. And they had the sifters, mm-hmm. and they're looking for any clue. And one of the things that they were focusing on was Hill 2, because they were coming up with all these bones. But well, they didn't realize they were enemy bones. Jim goes, no, the jet crashed on Hill 3. So they're working. They couldn't find anything. They did get some clues that validated the crash site as being that of the two men that Jim was searching for. DPAA says, hey, we're going to go back. We'll call you when we're going back. Thanks for helping us. And we know you went on. He's the only man I know that spent his own money go back. Well, he got a phone call last year. Hey, we're just back from Cambodia. We went in to that site, but we weren't able to recover anything. Oh, I'm sorry. We forgot to call you. Yeah, DPA did not call him after he was out there twice on his own to help them. So that's the kind of people we're dealing with at
0: DPAA. And, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a cynical question, but did they <laughs> actually, did they actually go? Like they actually went and. Did oh yeah, talk? they went,
1: they were there, they were in, they went to the crash site and again, they, they, as far as we can tell now, maybe they had some success. Could they're, they're known to lie or to not, give people the accurate story or they will give you a limited detail, but the golden nugget of the truth is three or four paragraphs and, and offices away where you may not ever find out what the truth is, but they did go back and they went without Jim. They never called him. That's the kind of people we're dealing with here. That's our government. So I'm a little bit bitter about it, but, um, Jim is a cool guy. He said he'd go back if they needed him to go back. And that's, and that's just as a one zero. He didn't even know these two guys. These were Air Force men that died supporting his mission. Oh, no, they died on another mission. And Jim's mission was to go in and recover He right. barely got out alive.
0: So moving on, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and and unfortunately, you know that seems to be. I mean, you can kind of name name an agency, or or, I mean, there's documentary after documentary on different government agencies of different governments, and once the once the bureaucracy reaches a certain level, it's just wheels spin, but no ground gets made up, you know.
1: And that's yeah, bureaucracy becomes more concerned about growing and feeding the bureaucracy than what its mission is. Right. And the DPAA is the epitomization of that. They you can kiss my ass. <laughs> right. Tell me how you really feel, John. <laughs> well, I'm increasingly bitter because of things that happened in the last two weeks, but I can't talk about it yet because right now it's on a confidential basis.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and, and again, and that's the, I think that's the, the side of, of warfare that I, I don't know if it, I mean, I think intriguing, I think is the right word, but it's also not because it's one of those things that you don't immediately suspect. It's just, you, you unravel the story and you can talk about all the missions and you can talk about the bravery and, and which certainly there's no shortage of, but then you realize that, Oh, you know, there's actually this, you know, really just kind of tragic element to it. And at the very least, you know, if I, you know it, hopefully it doesn't sound insensitive, but at the very least, thankfully the stories can be told and the stories can be shared and, and the experiences and the bravery that those men uh, displayed can at least, you know, that legacy can live on, but it certainly doesn't make it a, a easier pill to swallow.
1: Right. And, and, you know, today you hear it time and again, leave no man or today man or woman service member behind. Look at what they did for Jessica. I can't say her last name right now, but there was a great effort to recover her and the seals went in and they had a multi-agency that went in and they finally got her out. It was a hell of an operation. They did, they did good work. And so you hear all this talk on one level but then it's kind of like, oh, well, this is the Vietnam War. We have 1,584 uh, men and women listed as missing in action. And okay, um, they let me look at my budget for how I can pump it up for next year. And it's just, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm bitter. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, you don't think about it. Because like in my case, you sign up, hey, we're the tip of the spear for, in 1968. The Green Berets doing secret missions across the fence behind enemy lines. That is the cat's meow. You don't think about getting killed. And if you do get killed, think about your family, either being lied to or not given the truth by your government and your mother and father die without ever knowing the truth. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's the, that, elements of it and that's yeah it's it's heartbreaking to say the least you know like
1: we talked about in across the fence I mean we had our first interview with you and I and when I was upside down I passed out I really saw my life fast before my eyes I was pissed (laughs) because they said I died I saw the front page of our local newspaper said local boy dies in Vietnam he goes no I died in Laos but in that case I don't want my mom and dad to know that I died from passing out
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So silver lining in that case, I suppose. Yeah, it's <laughs> not very heroic at all. <laughs> Goodness. And the on the podcast that you were on on your episode today that I was listening to, uh kind of trying to connect this, but what I'm curious about is uh and I, I did you I can't I'm trying to remember. Uh Walter Cronkite. I think you refer to Uncle Walt. Oh, was that oh, the no. yeah? <laughs> And what I didn't understand, uh, obviously, you know, you kind of look back. I mean, to be honest with you, before being exposed to uh, all this material, my level of understanding about Vietnam was that scene, uh, those scenes in Forrest Gump. That is literally the extent of my knowledge about anything to do with Vietnam. And you can kind of look back and, and you realize that, obviously, there was very strong anti-war movements, and politically, it was just this hot-button topic, and it was just a, a train wreck from start to finish. What I didn't understand, and from listening to your episode, was that the what was being told to the public was that the Americans are, were losing the war. This is not going well. But in actuality, it sounded as though it was going Pretty well, and I'm. I, you can correct me, but the the phrase that you guys were talking about, which kind of made me, it kind of made me giggle, but is also kind of heartbreaking because you understand the the political element of it, which is that the U S hasn't the U S wins battles, but we haven't won a war since World War II, and I thought that was such an interesting little phrase uh, that you guys were discussing. Right. And again, what you're talking about, was
1: the the key critical moment of Walter Cronkite was after the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive was uh, at the end of January of 68, and it was announced that the North Vietnamese are going to have a Tet, which is their holiday. There'd be no combat. So everybody can go eat, drink, and be merry as a Tet truce. Well, of course, the communists, being the lying bastards they are, It was an obvious lie, but they rallied their Viet Cong and North Vietnamese attacked, had launched major attacks, I think as many as 38 cities across South Vietnam, including Hue and Saigon. The bottom line, every battle that was launched by them was won by the U.S. or our allies. The communists assumed that when the South Vietnamese saw all of this uprising by the communists that the South Vietnamese would go, wow, let's go join the good guys. Well, they didn't. Any, any South Vietnamese with half a mind didn't want to be under the thumb of communism. So the Viet Cong got decimated. They were never the force to be in the field that they were prior to the Tet. And so after all these battles, Walter Crykite gets up and tells America he can't see America winning this war. There's no light at the end of the tunnel or something ridiculous. And that had a greater impact. And, of course, they didn't talk about all the other wins. Yes, the Battle of Way went on for over a month with the Marines and Army troops there. They had to go back, take it back, building by building, like World War II. But they did take it back. And even there, initially, they were engaged with rules of, uh, uh, rules of engagement that would not allow them to shoot artillery or tank weaponry at any building in the city of Way. The Marines fought under those constraints for a week and a half or two weeks. Finally, some lieutenant colonel came in and said are you crazy? (laughs) Wherever they are, you take them out, get the tanks rolling. And that was part of them turning it around and fully with the Marine Corps style. They came through and did it with the some army support and a lot of aviation, but they took the city. But politically, the anti-war movement took Walter Cronkite's word over the misreporting that failed to accurately describe what happened in Tetis 68. Because we learned about it from the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese themselves, talking about how decimated the Viet Cong were.
0: And so again, like just as a just as a young reader trying to understand that, that makes no sense to me. Like why? And again, it doesn't sound like it's um, you know like any uh, problem. That goes to a mass scale. You know, the 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 problem or, or highlighting the problems within a problem generally is quite simple, but it can be complex because the bigger it gets, you know, just the web grows and you know then it just interconnects in all these different ways, which makes it a little bit more challenging. So I can imagine that you know it, it's it's not just as simple as a one answer kind of thing. But for somebody who was fighting in the in the Secret War and was living. At that time, you were around at the time. Um, What was the motivation for that type of misinformation? Was it really just having to do with some type of political ramifications? Or or like what was kind of give us like a. Remember, this is
1: by 68. So the United States had had a presence in Vietnam and uh, a major presence. So by, by 68, we had more than 500,000 Americans in South Vietnam. So by 69, we peaked the top number, I think was 546,000 Americans were assigned to South Vietnam. Now keep in mind, one out of 10 were involved in combat. The rest were support cooks, but truck drivers just going up and down the road would always get ambushed and anybody could get mortared. So anybody was there you know, it was a combat zone. You knew you were in a war zone. And um, so by 68, there had been over five years of a very antagonistic relationship between the media and particularly the, uh, the daily briefings they had in Saigon. And they were very big on body counts. Like uh, Westmoreland thought that they could, through the war of attrition, wipe out Enough of the communists so that they would have to give up the war. Well, that wasn't going to happen. They had bodies they would inscript people and send them south. And China and Russia provided them all the you know billions of dollars of equipment, anti-aircraft and uh, ammunition, whatever they took. So, anyways, that that was a part of the war going on. So, by 68, there was this very ante- antagonistic perspective. So, when somebody like Walter Cronkite goes, hey, we're losing this war, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, it's like, oh my God. So everybody believes him. And then, of course, the anti-war movement picked up on it. And people forget that the anti-war movement had its share of communists in it also. Yeah. And there was a groundswell of support throughout America. There's surveys. The uh, Fox Nation just did a five-part package on Vietnam. And in it, they included surveys taken of the Americans, not in the cities and not in the the anti-war movements. There was still a support for the effort against the communists in South Vietnam as late as 1970. But people don't hear about that because it doesn't get reported. And Ken Burns sure didn't bother to report it in any of his stuff. What's
0: so... So right now I'm along with uh, this style <laughs> of, of podcast uh, where I, you know, I have a guest on and we talk about whatever it is that we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm doing a, a secondary, uh, I guess you can call it a secondary series, uh, a partner series, however you want to describe it, but uh, talking about mythology and it's just something that I'm interested in. And it's just kind of a, it's just sort of an interesting thing that I'm doing and I'm and, and recording and, and doing stuff like that. And through the process of researching, you know, and I'm very interested in Greek mythology in particular, those guys are pretty smart. And uh, I think the storytelling is very interesting. And, and so I'm very drawn to that. And what I've been realizing and, and kind of one of the things, or maybe not realizing, because I think realizing insinuates that I understand what's happening. I think I understand like 10%. I think as a good student, you know what I mean? It's 90% ignorance and t- 10% knowledge. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but you're hungry to learn more at least. That's right. And what I find so fascinating and it's, it's eerie in a way is that Today in 2022, we got technology up the yin-yang. We have, we're connected in a way, well, I'll be careful with this. And this is kind of where I'm getting to is that we're connected in a way that has un- unprecedented. Certainly, I think that's fair to say, but tying it back to what we're specifically talking about, the same issues that we're dealing with today, as far as misinformation and Uh, feeding a, a propaganda war and how if you're trying to move a society in a particular direction there is sort of a formula that you can follow that's been tried from the ancient Greeks to the Romans all the I mean you can you can find this happening this pattern of human behavior occurring over and over and over again and what's so ridiculous to tie it to our conversation is that in the age of basically just newspaper radio and television, you know, early television for, for the sixties and the seventies that an influencer, right. To use a modern day term that an influencer like Walter Cronkite could go on a major network where tens of millions of people watch that show, which is, I think today, in the age of streaming and, you know, network television really isn't as popular as it was back then. Tens of millions of people are listening to the opinions that are being uh, purported as being fact. And I think that's the key there. And just as you described it as well, the fact that the anti-war movement was actually being funneled and promoted by communism, by communists, is you might as well call it a, a Russian troll farm generating memes today. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable. And it, it like, even now, like, I got chills. Like, it's, it's so odd, you know? And to think that the impact of it affects not just how the war was fought and ended back then, but it has this trickle-down effect to even today where the DPAA really isn't that, mo- they aren't as motivated to go for looking for Vietnam, uh, for, for those wounded, pardon me, for those missing in action from Vietnam, but they'll look for World War II, you know, soldiers from World War II in Korea, because it just has, It's like you pointed out, there's a, it's easier in some ways, but it's more palatable. You can sell it to the public. It's just, man, it just makes your head spin. Oh, yeah. I, I agree and it's really disappointing and and that's what it must be you know and and to try and understand that is is just it, it's kind of amusing in some ways that the things that we get so fired up about culturally uh it's no different it just has a different name a different face and a different time but it's we're really talking about the same things constantly throughout history and to see it play out. And it kind of reminds me of um, uh, the Gulag Archipelago when that book was released. And then the the USSR, I guess you can say that it fell shortly after because they just ripped the curtain back and went, look at what th- these these. Uh, genocides that are occurring in these horrible uh, war uh, crimes against humanity that are being um, perpetrated by, by a government at a mass scale. It, it's just, it just never really changes, you know, it wasn't and it's
1: actually reported in the beginning. I mean, no. And the other thing is, I mean, the Soviet Union has, has infiltrated our government from the day it was founded in 1917. They've been in our government, in other parts of our country. And they're much more sophisticated now. 50 years ago, they were rude. You have students of democratic society Mm -hmm. that were just rude and go, yeah, man, you know, we're up against the system here, come fight with us. We're up against the system, we're up against the man. Yeah, all right, you're an idiot. And you look like you got, you're under the influence of some communist or socialist somewhere. So go go, patter, take a patter, leave us alone. (laughs) <laughs> but they became more sophisticated and they're, and they're still out there today. Anything they can to hurt our country. And, you know, there's, there's good books that are coming out now, finally talking about some of this impact. And uh,
0: it's really scary. I, I will mention one book. I'm, I'm fairly certain it's on the reading list on, on my website right now. I have about 50 books that I have uh, 50 or 60 <laughs> I have to update. I have this thing where I just buy books like a maniac, uh, which is, you know, we'll just add to the student debt, right? We'll just keep. Have up. you been hanging out with my wife a little bit? <laughs> just rack it up, rack it up, yeah, rack yeah. the books up. But uh, there's a, uh, just very briefly, there's a book. Um, uh, it's called, oh, now I'm forgetting it. Uh, Red Handed? That one. And is it Red Roulette? Red Roulette? If you go to the history section on the website, there's a link in it. If you go to the history section, you're gonna find it. But it it talks about what is occurring in modern, uh, what's occurring right now in China, and the the, communism is, it's more or less the same wherever you find it. You know, it's it's the same. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's bloody. And wherever you go, you're gonna kind of find the same. Patterns that occur, but it's it's a very interesting read uh, for the listeners um, to check that out. Um, yeah, because look at
1: what they did in Shanghai. I mean, they just forced millions of people to stay in their apartment Some of them came in and, and nailed their doors shut, so they couldn't even leave. I mean, communism and socialism, whatever you call it, you cannot find one form of
0: that government that has seceded. You, uh, what you can find to, is, is to, a millions of bodies is what you can find Oh yeah <laughs> that's what you will find yeah yeah the
1: only question is who killed more was a stalin or mayo test I mean Hitler only killed six million mm-hmm. whereas Stalin killed 60 80 of his own people and mayo test another 60 to 80 and that's over a hundred 100 million of their own people killed intentionally. So they can make their communism regime take
0: over mm-hmm. brutal. And so I think, uh, <laughs> speaking of, uh, horrible, horrible, horrible things, I think we'll, <laughs> we'll switch gears and we'll, we'll end it on a little bit of a, well, not a little bit. We'll end it on a, a much happier note, I think. Um, but you, you mentioned his name earlier, but since we, we've been talking uh, talking about a bunch of different things today, I think it'd be nice to uh, have a little bit of a positive spin on on the whole experience. Uh, But tell us a little bit about Gary Mike Rose. Gary Mike Rose was uh, a Green
1: Beret medic, been in the Army, had a tour of duty in Thailand, and then went to Vietnam with Special Forces as a Green Beret medic. At that time, as is true today, the Green Beret medics are the best in the world. They're the best trained, uh, they can do surgery. They're just amazing. Um, so Mike was attached to B Company Hatchet Force in September um, of um, 1970. They were operating out of Contum, which was uh, CCC, Command and Control Central, at that time. And um, earlier it had been FOB2. But the mission came down to CIA was in the western part of Laos. And at that time, Premier Sihanouk had uh, left, fled Cambodia and the communists wanted to head south to take over Cambodia in force. The CIA had a force of 5,000 men that were further west in Laos, uh, I believe it was the Plain of Jars, or um, anyways, but they were engaged with the economy. They were getting their ass kicked and they came to SOG and said, please insert a team further West of your area of operations. Cause normally when SOG operated, they could only go 40 kilometers in the country into Laos or Cambodia. I think it was 40, but don't quote me. But so there's an area of operations. This mission was beyond they say, we want you to go in, Distract the NVA. So they have to respond to you to take the pressure off of us. So um, the commander assigned that mission to Captain Gene McCarley. And uh, they went in with um 16 Green Berets and 120 indigenous Montagnards that were in B Company of the Hatchet Force of Kantum. And um Because the mission was so far west, they used Marine Corps CH-53 Deltas, which at that time was the premier heavy lift helicopter. Long story short, they went out, they got inserted, water getting inserted, they came under enemy fire. Now, normally for my recon team, if we take enemy fire on a surgeon, we're out of there. On this mission, the helicopters went in and everybody got out. went on a mission the only people who didn't get out were indigenous troops who were wounded and 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 uh you know mike rose years later said he couldn't believe it It was the only mission he was ever on when he got off the helicopter, he had to walk over the bodies of wounded men to get into the target they were on the ground so this is september eleventh, 1970 they launched into laos they get on the ground they were only on the ground for two or three hours. They came across an enemy command base with a cachet of food, weapons, and intel, maps. So they squarked up a lot of stuff. They um, blew up weapons, food supply. And while they're doing all this, the phone rang. The telephone rang. Captain Gene McCarley picked up the phone. Hello, 5th Special Forces Group, may I help you? So some poor commie on the other end of the line to this day is trying to figure out how did the Green Beret pick up the phone? Well, it was part of Operation Tailwind. So that was one of two caches they hit and destroyed. After they left, the Envy—I mean the Air Force came in with napalm runs, destroyed the food supplies, and Gene had seen earlier operations. They're called slam operations where a hatchet force would go in on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, block it, and then stay there and fight the NVA. Well, NVA didn't take Connie to that, and they would come down in mass and take on a hatchet force with horrific casualties. Gene goes, we'll go in, but we're not going to stop moving. We're going to move day and night. And he did. The first night they were in the base and they're in the command area. Captain McCarley, a couple of his sergeants and Mike Rose and an RPG came through, missed all the men, hit a tree and then exploded. So the shrapnel came backwards. It wounded Gary and Mike Rose in the foot and it gave him a, a wound in the hand. To this day, his hand is disfigured. He can do he can't do some movements with it. Because of the shrapnel from that. Several of the men were seriously injured. And um, um Mike went ahead, bandaged his foot, bandaged his hand, and then went to work as a medic. He was the only medic there. And they moved day and night, day and night. Um, they had extreme good air cover at night. They had Spectre gunships, the C 130s, and um they were successful because they took the, the pressure off of the CIA operation and the NVA by day four uh, came at them with a vengeance. And uh, on day three, they found another enemy cache, maps, Intel. And um, by that time, uh, uh, one of the indig had died, but the other severe, seriously wounded, they still carried him. And Mike Rose had to use his car 15 as a crutch when they moved throughout this mission. And then uh, we could talk more about the extraction later, but that's essentially the mission they were on day and night in constant contact virtually. And they got through it. At the end, uh, the 16 green, there are over 32 Purple Hearts handed out alone on that mission. Mike was given the Distinguished Service Cross Shortly thereafter, and then he uh, was awarded the Medal of Honor at the White House, October twenty third, two thousand seventeen, by President Trump, and quite rightly.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and in I can't recall. I think I think it is in. It would be uh, Sog Chronicles. You have lots of great pictures, and oh yeah, you know, that, that's what's cool about the book as well is that. And I mean, and you have pictures of the guys from back in the day, the indigenous uh, troops, the some of the aircraft, the the one picture of the um, Sky Raider in particular, it looked like it was out of a Jurassic Park movie, not Vietnam War. It was it's ridiculous. So oh, yeah. it's just unreal. Some of the um, I mean, there's so much. And and of course, there's uh, actually it's on the back cover. There's a, a nice little write up and, and picture of the. Uh, Uh, of uh gary getting the receiving the medal of honor from president trump is very cool absolutely
1: you know and on the last day i mean um they were planning to go for another day at least and on day three they attempted to evacuate the wounded because mike had been treating the seriously wounded as well because more than 50 percent of the indigenous troops were wounded along with the Green Berets who were wounded from the ongoing firefights and shrapnel, everything else. Plus, uh, Mike was wounded himself. But um, so they were attempting to uh, extract. So CH-53 Delta comes in. When Mike was lifting up the first wounded, the helicopter got hammered with anti-aircraft fire, lifted off, and went and crashed. Did a crash landing. So they, that was scratched. And they came back the next day attempting again. But at this point, Covey told Gene McCarley, the team leader, hey, the weather's coming in, and I'm at 5,000 feet or 6,000 feet. I can see several hundred and more NVA all heading your direction. And the, with the, the bad weather, come, we have to get you out before the weather comes, or you're not going to get out. You're going to get overrun. So it went from that. They came in with, uh, I think it was two or three CH-53 Delta, Marine Corps. The first helicopter came in and took out 50 of the men. Second helicopter came in, this time with more gunfire, but they leave, getting again 50, another 50 or so out. So now they're down to the last 36 to 40 men, all the intel, the maps, etc. And when this helicopter comes in, Uh, At one point before the third helicopter came in, the NVA almost overran the team. A spad pilot by the name of Tom Stump did this heroic run, somehow broke through the clouds, found the team, and did two or three gun runs that wiped out hundreds of NVA that were attempting to overrun the team. There was another wave that came in. They hit him with uh, CS gas, tear gas. Mm. And so that made them disoriented the third helicopter comes in it lands they load up and mike rose and gene mccarley and i think bernie bright were the last three men to get on the helicopter and the nba were coming out of the tear gas but they were they were still disoriented so they didn't throw any hand grenade but they were shooting and they were and our guys were literally blowing them back into the tear gas or into the jungle When it got extracted, as it's lifting off, somebody goes to Mike and says, the door gunner's been shot in the neck. Mike looks over, and the blood is pumping out of his neck. Mike goes over as the helicopter is lifting off under intense enemy fire. He goes over and saves this young Marine's life. And at some point, the Marine's getting close to going into shock, and Mike goes, look, damn it. If you're going to die, you would have been dead a long time ago. You're going to live, settle down. He passed up his wound and saved this young Marine's life. The helicopter lifts up and goes over the first mountaintop. First engine, first of two engines goes out. It goes over the second mountaintop. The second engine goes out. And the pilot never had any training for a loaded CH-53 Delta to do auto rotation with a full load of men, equipment, and intelligence, and weapons. So, bottom line, and then he, he put out a Mayday message Mayday, Mayday, I've lost my engines. And uh, so he kept thinking, well, somebody would come up and say, hey, you know, go to this mountaintop or go here. But nobody said anything. He said again, Mayday, I'm looking for an LZ. He couldn't, nobody said a word because Covey was on, had to return to base for fuel. And so bottom line, the, the pilot is auto rotating down. He comes in, he sees a small riverbed, and it's on like a little bit of hill leading up to it and there's some sand. So he goes in and auto rotates in. When they rotate in, auto rotation is when the engines are gone, the movement of the blades allow the helicopter to descend at a rate of speed, instead of crashing and just falling out of the sky. It can be a jarring experience. So when a crash lands and this auto rotation, G McCarley and Mike Rose are expelled from the helicopter. The impact was so severe that G McCarley crushed his teeth. It took them two years to replace the teeth that were crushed that day on that mission. So they get out and everybody survived. Another CH 53 Delta comes in and they picked up everybody, went back to base and they had a party. Survival, the, the, the survivors. And like I said, there were 30. 32 uh, Purple Hearts handed out to the uh, 16 Green Berets are on that mission.
0: I just like how that story ends. And then they had a party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: <laughs> and they invited him back the next day. The aviators, everybody who participated, except for the SPAD pilots, somehow the word didn't get out to the SPADs, but uh, the A1s, but the other Marines were there and they had a, there was quite a night. My God. Jeez. Just to be so That was one of the Sog. most successful missions in the eight-year history of SOG yeah. because of all the intel they got, the fact they took the pressure off the CIA, mm-hmm. and um, um, oh, they got a picture of Ho Chi Minh. At the picture on the front page there's two men from the mission, they got a picture of Ho Chi Minh that was taken from one of those uh, headquarter areas that they overran and took the supplies and the intel maps and stuff from it's a great story i'm biased i i we love it
0: that's that's a pretty good story (laughs) it's not just you (laughs) that's something
1: oh Oh my god God.
0: just another dance song that's it (laughs) oh my goodness well i don't think we can i don't think we can top that so uh (laughs) so i think that's that's a good place. I I kind of lost track of time there. We've been going for uh, quite a well, while. Yeah, don't forget Mike Rose
1: uh he is on sodcast number 10. Great. So if you go to Spotify or Apple Podcast, the audio is up and uh hopefully within the next month or 2 months the uh, YouTube will be posted. So far we've got uh, 22 that have been posted for audio. We have 5 YouTube's that have been posted for SODCast. And, uh, the sixth one has been edited, should be posted any day now. Yeah. You got to tell Echo to get on it, huh? I don't tell Echo anything. He's <laughs> Jocko. And Jocko uh, to his credit, Jocko willing productions has paid for all the Sawcast. They pay for the equipment I have, the microphones, the cameras. When we travel, he pays for all the flight costs and hotels and meals. And, um, it's, it's been a very uh, amazing relationship working with Jocko and Echo.
0: Yeah. And, and I got to tell you as well, you know, the, the impacts what's so fascinating about stories, stories of any kind is that they have the ability to impact people you may not suspect. And so for uh, a kid who was uh, in university in England at the time, and then moves back to Vancouver, uh, you know, I've, these stories really have made an impact on me and and certainly in my own life and for the, my own ambitions to pull the the lessons from these stories so that they can help me in my endeavors that have nothing to do with the military in any way. And yet it's so applicable. Uh, there's something really special about that. And so I, I can't thank you enough for Coming on here and talking to me and being able to share this with my audience and definitely the the outreach that Jocko has on his show and, oh, and yeah. your show as well. You know, in you fact, you know, June fifth
1: was the uh, three year anniversary of him doing my first interview with Jocko, the Jocko podcast number one eight zero, and I think we've got over seven hundred and ninety thousand views on that one
0: alone that's awesome uh, hard to I believe that's three that. years
1: jaco said that the audio has more more greater listenership
0: oh it'll have a it'll lot more beautiful.
1: yeah yep, i don't know anything about this whatever Jocko or you say okay <laughs> fine i just do my job get them up there and get them posted you just show up and look pretty that's
0: right that's right yeah <laughs> somebody's gotta look beautiful out there <laughs> oh that's great Well, thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And um, I'm I'm sure I'll I'll rope you into a third episode at some point. So I'm looking forward to Go bounce it back like a bad check. (laughs) There you go. That's right. Thank you so much, John.
1: Have a great night. All right. Till next time. God bless.